Tonight's talk is uh, about calm and insight, the, the vulnerability that comes up when we open to levels of insight, the degrees of both grief and gratitude in practice, and some uh, points on how metta and mindfulness steer our way through this awakening process. I want to begin by expressing gratitude to teaching lineage. It's always difficult to single you know, any one person or group or, or country, but it's always good to reflect with gratitude on the, uh, the fruits that we are receiving here in having a tradition of practice in this, at this time. So I want to point to one of the one of the persons who introduced or reintroduced this mindfulness practice in the last century. He lived between 1868 and 1955, and he was uh, he was Saida U Narada, or also known as the Mingun Saida. It's really because of him that just about all of the modern Vipassana traditions uh, have, have been brought to us. That is, the teachers in all the Southeast Asian countries of these traditions were in one way or another influenced by Unarada and the following teachers, Mahasi Saira, the great nun Meikin from Burma, um, Tangpulu Saira, the, the Ubakin tradition, and, and the traditions in Thailand and Sri Lanka as well. He was um, a wandering ascetic in search of, of, of a practice tradition, because at this time in the late 19th century, as in many other countries, the, the, the practices had been come, become confined largely to study, theory, and um, devotional practices, but not so much this living tradition of mindfulness practice. So. Uh, he wandered up and down Burma, and finally he came to this area in Upper Burma along the Irrawaddy River called the Sagain Hills, famous for thousands of years for all its caves and ascetic practices, practitioners who, who uh, have attained awakening there. And he found someone uh, reputedly enlightened and asked them, you know, well, what's the way? How do I do this? Where are the teachings? And this, uh, this enlightened person responded very directly and simply. He said, why are you looking outside of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness? So U Narada went away and reflected on that, uh, looked at the Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings on mindfulness, uh, and really put all his, his intention and his energy into the exact practice of mindfulness of body, feelings, consciousness, and all the contents of consciousness, the nature of experience itself. And he reputedly became an, an arhant and taught in the, the teachers of the traditions I've mentioned. And as a fruition, we have, we have this unbroken lineage that we're, that we're receiving, that we're the receptacles of, of calm and insight. 
Buddhist psychology teaches us uh, the, that a law of nature is the fundamental clarity and purity of our mind. With that understanding, we come um, with a very favorable you know, potential. All we have to do at times is reflect that there's nothing ultimately that we need do. That we just sort of get in the way of the winds of enlightenment, the winds of Dhamma. The, the awakening process will happen. So our calm practice, what we're emphasizing a lot in this, in this first week of practice, is the restoration of this fundamental clarity and, and stillness of mind. It returns the mind to its, to its luminous nature. And once, once initiated, we really recognize the process moving on its own, that there's a natural inclination of the mind to subtler states of consciousness. Very subtle states of tranquility and very subtle states resulting from insight, from deep insight into the nature of things. So we're doing, we're doing this initially through our anchor, uh, the body, the breath, just carefully protecting the mindfulness in this focused way, moment to moment, very carefully observing the nature of things as they are, as they are happening within a breath, within a single breath. Or likewise, if we're using the body and are being mindful of the, the elemental nature, happening when we're just sitting. It's, it's an anchor. The concentration that we develop means simply the gathering of the mind together. It's not particularly concentration on a single minutia or object. Concentration can be galactic, you know, therefore the whole field of body. But the, but the effort to focus it in a limited area is really valuable. We will build on that foundation. So to be able to just focus on the anchor and bring the awareness back to the anchor, gently, non-judgmentally, is of great, uh, great value to the practice. We see, of course, we see initially, see and understand um, the habits of mind in distraction, the hindrances. It's a very important and essential part of it. It's also aspects of mind. The aim is understanding, not to rid ourselves of anything, not to cling to anything. So there's a lot of work initially on sleepiness and restlessness and doubt, wanting mind and fearing or aversive mind. This is okay. This too we, we include, embrace in our awareness. Notice it momentarily in this beginning week uh, and then bring the bring the attention again back to the anchor. Metta is also a very powerful anchor and a practice we use a lot, introduce in combination or in complement to the mindfulness practice. Metta is a, itself a doorway, a path uh, to liberation. And many of the ancient traditions um, in this lineage Teach that, teach metta as a, a path to insight itself. Uh, we've introduced it a lot because 
it has helped uh, soften the heart, open the mind, bring about that non-judging quality of mindfulness, to the steadiness of being, and that sense of being within ourselves, and that sense of being connected to everything at the same time. Metta is a practice of unity, of oneness. We do it in the way that will be led here um, every Tuesday night, the metta and its related practices of compassion, joy, and equanimity with um, ourselves as a metta subject or um, the beings that we most easily incline toward as, uh, as subjects of our loving kindness that draw the loving kindness out as one of the innate luminous facets of our mind. Uh, or metta body scans that can be done at the beginning of sittings, at the end of sittings. This where we wash this metta awareness carefully through the body to soothe, to bring calm. So we feel connected. We feel uh, within ourselves a sense of place here, both in solitude and in connection. Metta also can uh, greatly energize awareness. Brings a lot of brightness, radiance to our mindfulness practice. And along with our focus on the anchor, returns to the natural stillness of mind. Solitude and, and calm are one and the same. That is, we're here learning to be alone, learning to be in solitude while still feeling the, the support of this intimate connectedness with the, with the community, with the Sangha. The sense of, uh, the sense of collected or connected aloneness or solitude is the foundation of our awakening, of our spiritual intelligence, of, of all creativity, certainly of the liberating insight. It's the aim of practice. Such solitude demands that we learn to rely on our own inner resources. We're supported by the community. We're supported by the teachings of the Dharma, of the Buddha. You know, we're supported by the, the protective container of this retreat. But ultimately, we're drawing from our own inner resources. Very empowering in that sense. The retreat community is here to create the safe environment, but it's really up to each of us individually to draw out these qualities of practice. It's like the healthy growth of a child. You know, the need of a child at times to, to really feel engaged and, and connected with someone who's protective, a caretaker, you know, you know, a friend. And at other times, the sense that that person is not far away, but not intruding, so that one, so the child can explore on her own. Not afraid, because the environment as a whole feels protected, but not feeling there's any kind of sense of intrusion. Recently, uh, or last month, Michelle and I were teaching a retreat in in Italy, uh, before that we were 
we were vacationing with Corrado Pensa, uh, who teaches here, and his wife, and their, their four-year-old, Giorgio, who became my best buddy in a very short period of time. It was really awesome, because it was a very intense connection, but we understood nothing of each other's language. Didn't bother him, because he was, he had this exhaustive supply of comments and questions, and all in Italian. <laughs> and all I could do was say, see. Si. <laughs> so he very quickly learned to manipulate that. You know, he'd say something, I'd say, see, si, and he'd run to his mother's backpack and pull out cookies, you know, <laughs> at any time of the day. And and we developed this relationship where uh, we'd be doing intense things together, you know, playing in the, in the water in the Mediterranean and throwing them up in the air and teaching them to jump off these rocks. And, you know, he's really, really a boy child and, and loves this intensity. And, and at the same time, because he never did many of these things, he was terrified. You know, but it didn't stop him. So it was like this terrifying pleasure on his face, you know, kind of grim at first but then feeling the glee of thrill. And then at times, he'd feel my presence, but I'd just back off. And he'd, he'd play on his own. He'd wander on his own. He'd venture out uh, with his own resources, guiding him in discovery you know, and playing the edge of what he could do as a four, not, you know, just not even yet a four-year-old. And look every once in a while to make sure I was around, you know, and then go back to whatever he was doing. So, you know, it's a flourish of curiosity, of inquiry, of that sense of discovery, the joy of discovery, and great, great energy. And we just got along with two or three words. He, he al I, I also learned the meaning of the word uh, ankora, which means more. <laughs> so whatever we were doing, have, you know, more, please, more fun. And then his mom started to make him translate into English. You know, so more please, he'd say, more please. And then sometimes we'd be doing something that made his mom a little bit nervous. You know, like two kids, we'd pick up a couple of sticks and play at sword fighting. And so his mom, uh, when she first saw that, Neva, she said, Oh, no permito, no permito. And so we just looked at each other, you know, and laughed. And later when she was not looking, <laughs> we looked at each other and we said, no permito, and picked up our sticks. So every time she calls Neva, and she called last night, um, she puts Giorgio on the phone and he's yelling, no permito, no permito. And she's teaching him every day new English words so he can talk to me next summer. That closeness, that connection, and, and the solitude. The closeness, uh, the force of loving kindness, the, 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 the power of sangha, connectedness, oneness, and the solitude, relying on our own resources. A deeper sense of, of interconnectedness uh, and insight. Along with 
describing this essential Buddhist psychological law of um, uh, the natural purity of the mind uh, is a description of the innate urge for wholeness and liberation. That is the, the ultimate desire, the purest, deepest, strongest desire within us all is the desire for, for completion and liberation. And this is how we are drawn into contact with dharma. It draws us here, draws us into a sense of sangha, inspires us to practice and sustain practice. The dharma heals. The dharma empowers. The dharma liberates. It's very simple and direct. We use the metta, we use the mindfulness to look immediately at things as they are. Yet it's amazingly difficult. Think about it. To look at impermanence, for example. It really requires an attention, an intense attention to our own vulnerability. because of really the nature of impermanence. Uh, it spells out the fleetingness of our own lives, of life all around us. Feel intimately this fleeting nature. It, it, it's a very vulnerable feeling. And therefore, why we practice uh, in this space of sangha, in this protected container where we feel safe enough to be alone. Change and loss, that's, that's mostly what impermanence is about. Largely our practice is learning to mourn with an intensely compassionate awareness this change and loss. I went home for a week at the end of the retreat in Italy, just to check in with um, my mom, you know, who's now almost 91. And it was in August, and it was around the full moon. In the August, August full moon in Hawaii, we have this vine called the Night Blooming Sirius. It blooms only once a year, only one night, and only around the full moon. The beautiful lotus-looking flower, you know, that uh, it just sends out this radiance, particularly in the moonlight. By morning, it's it's all folded and withdrawn. So beautiful, so fleeting, uh, at once. On Sunday, I went with uh, Michelle to the services for her. Her friend who lost her life, uh, she was on that American Flight 11, first jet that crashed into the World Trade Center. What a powerful event. First of all, um, I was immediately aware that there were no relics 
to do the ritual with. You know, ashes, body, bones, something that we've done for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, most likely. So it was all focused on the energy of this woman, Judy. And it was very moving to see that everyone there who spoke for her and to her uh, and about her to us uh, within this sheltered tent on the beach, uh, this lake where she grew up, where Michelle grew up, spoke to her great quality and, and referred, you know, we're expressing grief, but we're expressing much more gratitude for this woman's life. So she was talked about as um, mother. Her two daughters arranged this ceremony. As a daughter, as sister, uh, as best friend, uh, for you know, all those who spoke. And they almost unflinchingly spoke to her great courage, her, her, the modeling of her life in helping others, all the people around her, overcoming great hardship, becoming successful in the world, and then sharing her, what she had gained, or uh, different causes, environmental causes, and in midlife, beginning to explore her own inner life. These are what people were speaking to, and only once in the hour was there any reference made to September 11th. So it was, it was profoundly moving in the feeling of grief, you know, and the whole tent and the, uh, beyond the tent, there were many, many tears, but also it was so uplifting. That spirit of gratitude, so powerful, uh, that it carried through. People were really modeling her, and you could easily feel that they were they were going to live with her qualities in their hearts of caring and the great strength and compassion, loving kindness. Her, one of her daughters said that in a conversation just a week before, uh, her mom said, you know, if I, if I lost everything, I'd just begin again in this, living in this simple shack and doing the same things, living to help others to care and to share anything I got. This applies to our practice and understanding the insight of impermanence. Because of course we have to, to make a shelter for our grief, and to mourn loss, however it comes to us, to grieve a while, so we can let go, and to appreciate the power of gratitude, that gratitude ultimately is greater because it's sustaining. You know, and with loss, we grow more intimate with life, uh, with living beings and departed beings. We, we feel gratitude makes us feel part of something uh, beyond our cognition, beyond ordinary understanding of things. 
And this is why an insight is an insight, because it's not at all on an intellectual level. It's immediate, intuitive, you know, kind of from the gut. Only then, perhaps, followed by reflection. But it's not at all a gathering of words or phrases or ideas or paragraphs in the mind. It's about ex experience. It is experience itself in revelation. So gratitude again and again connects us with, with something that moves through our personal ancestry and our lineage ancestry. You know, the thousands of years that we have the symbol, for example, of the robe and the bowl. Those who turned away from daily, ordinary life so that they could preserve something that all of us who come in future can receive that in our own way as we do here. For we are a living in a retreat here uh, as one who wears the robe and carries the bowl. The symbol of goodness. A symbol of the worthiness and veneration of what we do. The great ultimate value of what we do beyond life and death. bring this intensely compassionate awareness then try and feel from within a single breath what it what it is aside from the idea of breath what's the actual experience beyond the, the form the concept of what we call breath what do we notice The, the pulsations, the pushing the pressure, vibrations, firmness. And what happens to them in that fleeting moment? You know, where's the breath? Is there anything there we touch that we can hold on to? No. And so we learn again and again that immediacy of letting go and letting go. And therefore, we're, we're urging the focus on the anchor so we really refine that skill of letting go. It is an aspect of mindfulness. Mindfulness is an innate part of our nature, but we have to create the conditions for it to come forth, for its purity to be enhanced. And so we follow this we follow a certain form so we can ultimately let go of form. Feel, for example, the nature of an actual breath or the body as it is. Or what is, what is a thought? What is a mood of mind in the moment that it's occurring? Aside from what we think about it. 
extraordinary to look for that kind of spacious intensity. Here we, f we find often, at least at the beginning, the value of the, the mental noting. Mental noting to help from being distracted or being distracted very long or from judging. The mental noting to help make that immediate connection. Be able to see the emptiness of a thought the moment we look at it, it's not there. Or the changing sense of flow when we look at the elemental nature of the body. At least in the beginning. Or when we sort of feel stuck or confused. That mental noting is a great aid, great tool. If it's light, if it's transparent, if it's a, a guiding force, not a describing one, not a conceptual one. The noting can help us disidentify with our story, with our narrative. So it's a very liberating moment, for example, when insight arises with thought as an object. You know, or thought in the background with maybe fear, mental mood of fear as the object of awareness. Very freeing. Because it's not the fear of the thought we need to get rid of. It's what we're seeing to understand impermanence. We're inviting, we're inviting you to you know, drop the agendas the reasons, the ostensible reasons for coming here you know, to work on something, to get rid of something. There's a certain magic and, and definitely a mystery in the Dharma overcoming us, you know, taking over like a current. We're just sort of setting ourselves up for, um, it's as if we're hoisting the, the, the sails, you know, on a canoe. And then we let the wind, we let the Dharma winds come, fill the sails and move along with mindfulness being like the, the rudder to navigate. I'd like to close with a, a story that... Um, to me expresses perhaps the greatest quality that supports all of our practice. You can call it patience, you can call it grace, you can call it um, you can call it creative spontaneity. Really it's all the same. It's about allowing awareness um, to grow spacious around our experience without becoming spaced out, with allowing the magic and the mystery of the Dharma to take over. But it's just a simple story. It's a worldly story. It's about a great uh, concert violinist, Itzhart Perlman, uh, from New York. And this particular story takes place in November uh, six years ago, 1995, 
he was on stage to give a concert at the Avery Fisher Hall, Lincoln City, uh, Lincoln Center in New York. And for those of you who know about Itzhak Perlman, it's, it's quite a sight to, to see him come on stage. He had polio as a child, so he wears braces on his legs and uh, uses crutches in each hand. He moves very slowly, painfully, yet majestically across the stage, finds his seat in the front of the uh, symphony, lays down his, his uh, hand crutches, takes off his braces and puts them down, puts one leg forward, the other sort of behind the chair, picks up his violin and his bow, signals the conductor and begins. So this was no different. Got to all those stages, and the people, you know, reverently receive this this process of him walking across and setting up. But this particular time, in November 1995, something went wrong. Within a few bars of um, the beginning of the concert, a string broke. The sound went off like a firecracker throughout the auditorium. People knew immediately what happened and knew what he had to do. Put down the violin, the bow, pick up the braces and put them on each leg, pick up his crutches, walk again slowly off the stage to get another violin or get in the string. But he didn't. Just took a moment, closed his eyes, again signaled the, the conductor and continued where he'd left off with three strings and played the uh, most the most amazing you know symphonic piece with his leading with the violin uh, that he ever played and the music came out with such power and, and purity and passion to move everyone, you know, to transport them in the moment, to transfix them. They, they were stunned and at one with the music all the way through. It seemed timeless uh, and like only a moment passed and then it was over. And there was a timeless moment of silence and then everyone stood up, cheering, shouting, you know, applauding, appreciating this powerful music played uh, more beautifully than they'd ever heard before. And after some minutes, Itzhak Perlman with his bow and s silenced the people. They sat down again. Uh, you know, he wiped his brow. And he said, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task um, to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. Hmm. And then he smiled, put his bow, violin down, put on his braces, picked up his crutches, and seemed to float off the stage. It's a powerful line that 
uh, you know, can stay with us as the, the sense of the center of our practice of what we're doing. That this is actually the way of life, not just of our artists, but of all of us. The music that he made that night with just a, with three strings, more beautiful, more sacred, more memorable than anything he'd ever performed before. Where did that magic come from? Where did that mystery come from? How did he do that? Recomposing sounds, down-tuning, up-tuning, but making these sounds. Playing with whatever we have left. Practicing with whatever we have left. Let's sit a moment together. In this uncertain, changing, bewildering world, may we be able to live, to make music, first with what we have, and when that's no longer possible, to make music with what we have left. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.